Hello and welcome, and before we get to the episode of this podcast, whether that's the Hallowed Histories or the Constant Reader, we would like to draw your attention to something we might think you will enjoy. Slow Burn Horror is a genre in which the chills come quietly and with subtlety, but with the force of a gut punch. A website devoted to this, slowburnhorror.com, has been running for some time, and we would love you to support their forthcoming anthology of short stories called Slow Burn, an anthology of household horror, which features stories by new and upcoming writers, including friend of the podcast Catherine Lee. A lot of these writers started out at the University of East Anglia's famous creative writing department, a place close to our own hearts. And if you're listening to this before the 3rd of October, please go and pledge to the Kickstarter at slowburnhorror.com. And if you listen to it after that date, why not just pick up a copy of the book? It's sure to give you something to look over your shoulder for this autumn. And now, on with the show. Hello, this is Stephen King. So hello and welcome back to the Constant Reader Podcast with me, your host, Richard Shepard. And today, uh, again, we're looking at another, uh, uh, a bit of a curio in the King canon, Sorry Right Number. It began life as a script for the anthology television show Tales from the Dark Side, which also featured writing by such mainstays as George Romero, Micah McDowell, Robert Block, and Clive Barker. So Sorry Right Number occurred in the fourth and last season of Tales from the Dark Side in November 1987. However, rather than it getting lost in the shuffle of dozens of other episodes, Stephen King gave it an unusual afterlife. The complete teleplay of the episode was published in that format in the 1993 anthology Nightmares and Dreamscapes, which itself spawned a TV series of adaptations. It was an interesting chance to look into King's mind and to see how he wrote in a different medium, and how he built tension to the uh, twist climax that is one part EC stories to one part Stranger Loop theory. And here to discuss it with me, I'm very pleased to say, is the writer, performer, theatre group leader, and longtime aficionado and expert on the ghost story. Indeed, he's on tour this autumn and winter with the stage show Haunted, tickets available now. He's also the host of the podcast The Ghost Story Book Club, and a regular guest on The Evolution of Horror, which is hosted by the former guest on this podcast, Mike Munzer. I am, of course, talking about the legendary Adam Z. Robinson. Hello, Adam. Hello, Richard. What an introduction. How kind <laughs> is that? How lovely. Thank you. Well, it also serves an obituary as well, if you ever need it. So, you know, <laughs> just keep yes. that. <laughs> I'll just clip this and pass it on to uh, my family, my lazy family members. Who work... <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> so um, I always kind of ask this question off the bat. I, I offer my guests a chance to talk about any Stephen King novel, any Stephen King adaptation, anything King related. Um, most people choose The Shining, and I have to say, no, we've already covered The Shining like four times now. It's getting ridiculous. But you've chosen a real deep cut, a real niche choice in terms of both its history and its format and um, just everything about it. So what was it about Sorry Right Number that kind of appealed to you? I mean, there are dozens of choices I, I could have made. Um, and... Uh... 
I, I've, I'm interested in writing scripts, of course. That's that's a big part of, of what I do. Uh, I, I'm interested in the way drama works. I'm interested in particularly um, the way horror works in terms of scripted drama. So this, as as you said in, in your introduction, is a bit of a curio, and, it, and I believe it's the only teleplay or, or screenplay that appears in any of King's um, anthologies. I think that's right, isn't it? Uh, there are a few that were published kind of on their own. Like I think Storm of the Century was ah. one that was uh, came out as like a proper like book size chunk. But this is, I think, the only one that's been featured in a, in a short story anthology. In the yeah. anthologies, yeah. And it, I mean, I remember I read this story way, way, way before I'd even heard uh, of, of Tales of the Dark Side, certainly before I'd seen uh, that episode, which I had to track down in a different way before our episode today than the first time I watched it. Um, and I think a it's... A completely been... uh, legal way, I hope. Well, it's totally legal. Um, so so far as me just visiting a website that it happens to be on is legal, I, <laughs> I don't think I'm breaking any laws. I can't speak to the... <laughs> the legality of the website I found it on, um, but yes, um, I, I, and I think it's I think it's a really terse, brilliantly constructed, effective, and unusual story for King actually because it it feels like it has several different opportunities to go in a more monstrous direction, shall we say, but it doesn't. It's actually in lots of ways quite sweet, um, and particularly. The, the draft that we have in uh, Nightmares and Dreamscapes, which is the anthology that I first read this in, uh, is I think King's first, he talks about it as his first draft in the in the mm-hmm. end notes. Um, and I, wouldn't, I, I often wonder about that expression, first draft, because I, I wouldn't let anyone anywhere near a first draft of mine. I really, really wouldn't. So I wonder whether it is in fact a first draft or whether it's the, the draft that he submitted i don't know you know um but i i find that version the version that we that we're able to read um i find it quite tender and a little moving and it's not yes it has this kind of slightly traumatic ending which i'm sure we'll get into unpicking and unpacking but it it's it's quite broadly a bittersweet ending. It's there's nothing massively horrifying that happens at the mm. climax, and I find that I find that really brilliant. I mean, you know, I'm on the right podcast to talk about what a fantastic writer Stephen King is, but I I, I do think I, nobody listening to this podcast will think this, but I do think sometimes people can be a bit dismissive of Stephen King in the sense of, oh, he's a horror writer, you know. I, I'm, you know, that's what i class myself as i'm a, I'm a horror writer but people are still quite sniffy about genre in general quite sniffy about horror in general in general horror in general i gave that a gentle g as well um, <laughs> the grand guignol general absolutely <laughs> <laughs> and i i think you only need to look at well anything by king really but look at something like this to see what an accomplished skilled um construct you know constructor of drama he is um i think it's yeah i i I really really like it and every time i go back to it it's more and more thrilling because you talked about this idea of the strange loop it's like a strange loop when you revisit it Mm. because you're almost willing you're almost willing for a different ending in some ways um and uh yeah i I think it's i think it's tremendously powerful yeah it's, it's something we've kind of talked about a lot 
as you could imagine, is the idea that the perception of King is as the horror guy. But obviously, The Shawshank Redemption was one of his most successful films and books, and it's not a horror film. Same with The Green Mile, I would say. Yep. Agreed. And same with his recent output, uh, mm. The End of Watch, Finders Keepers. Mm. Something like later as well, which kind of goes beyond more towards crime drama, but it's it's always that characterization that draws you back. Yeah. So whatever the narrative is, it's the characters that really kind of bring you in. And um, I don't know. It it's always a something we discuss on this podcast as well a lot is the autobiographical details of his writing. Yes. And to me, I mean, this came out eighty seven. Yeah. And. King kind of cleans himself up around this time, uh, quits drinking, quits drugs, uh, writes the Tommyknockers, so it's not all good. And then, uh, <laughs> I, no, I say that I quite like the Tommyknockers. Do you know, um, it's one I've never read, but I saw the film. Uh, the film oh, is don't. a mess. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, it, it's a low bar, but the book is better, I promise you. Right, okay, <laughs> okay. So to me, as you're saying, this is a tender story because it's about a relationship between a man who is going to die and a woman who kind of tries to save him but can't quite save him. So to to me, like with Lisi's story, it's King writing about the relationship with his wife. And I think he's either saying thank you for helping me to get cleaned up and not like die at this point, or it was him saying like, save me, because it Mm -hmm. is about it. A woman trying to say save me or save him him. and that message not registering with the person so kind of i mean it's always a mindful speculating on those kind of readings because we don't know but do you think there's anything to that i do i i i find that fascinating actually and also i'm a big advocate um of the idea of the death of the author you know i'm a big advocate of if we find it in the text if it's clear to us in the text it doesn't really matter what the mm. intention of the writer is. I think that across the board in, in terms of all um, art, I think it, it's it's so much about how we receive the art. And I think actually that's something that puts people off, for example, puts people off poetry because they think, oh, you know, I, I don't get it. And it's like, but actually whatever you get from it is the right thing to get from it. That's not to be dismissive of writers or, or their efforts or anything like that. And of course, you know, um, uh, what you're talking about in terms of bio, biographical um, information it, it is fascinating. And if we know a little bit about King, and, and obviously you know a lot about King, <laughs> um, we can find the, those things in there. But I think what struck me, just as you were saying that, is this could have been a gnarlier story in, in that sense then, couldn't it? Because one thing that um, kind of leapt out at me on a third or fourth reading um, quite recently is that what we get obviously in this story is uh, the strange loop where someone receives a phone call and um, it you know it leads to a situation where they try to see try to save their husband's life who's had a heart attack. Um, I'm sure we'll we'll kind of flesh the plot out a little bit mm-hmm. better than that. Um, but what occurs to me is there's a whole middle bit of this um, story. It's not it is a middle act technically, but the story's in two acts. That's something else I want to talk about shortly. Um, but we don't really get any focus in that middle act of him being ill. Mm. As such, we get we get a clue about it at the beginning. Mm-hmm. But we don't get much in the middle 
that sort of heralds this this thing that that's going to happen to him, which is that he's going to die of a heart attack. And it's interesting. This is why I'm curious about the first draft thing because you, I might suggest that actually him being, you know, um, an alcoholic, for example, or having some other, you know, substance uh, uh, addiction problems uh, and struggles that might have made an even more dramatic middle act, perhaps. Um, and we're, you know, you're talking about these biographical details and, and parts from King's life. It's, I, I just wonder whether that ever crossed his mind to, to put that in the story. Um, you know, it's an interesting idea. And I, I, I think this one is very much in King's own head and mm. kind of because you, he is so indistinguishable from the protagonist, isn't he? Uh-huh. He is a writer, uh, who's married. He's got three children. He writes in the horror genre. Yeah. He gets, you know, in his head and he's, he's a workaholic, obviously. Really? And to me, it seems because the whole point of it was like, what was it? Um, was it Kafka who said the point of life is that it ends? Yeah. I mean, this to me, the whole point of this story is that he dies, and I think maybe it's him. He has this home life, and he he loves his children, he loves his wife, and it's looking yeah. at all those things that he could lose, yeah. looking at all those things that mm. is just carried away in an instant. Very and to me, yeah, that that is kind of the point. Is that yeah. it's not necessarily saying, you know, I'm an addict. It's just saying I've got so much at stake here. You so know? much to lose, yeah. I think that- and all of that can go like that. You know? Yeah, yeah. I think that's so interesting. There are a couple of clues, I think. Well, I, I felt as I read it, this is so specific. I wonder if it happened. One mm. is um, the kid, Jeff, creeping up on, on Bill, the father, and saying Ooga Booga, and then kind of wondering why his father hasn't been frightened by this. That felt to me, it's so... It felt so specific and it felt so um, uh, realistic that I thought, I wonder whether that actually has come from an encounter that... Um, I'd love to ask Joe King if he could yeah, have... Yeah, 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 exactly. He, Joe Hill, rather. Joe Hill, yeah. Stuff, yeah. Yeah, I wonder whether that is um, something that happened. The other one is the encounter with the operator mm. where the operator basically starts talking to him at a really inopportune moment um about his books and how much of a fan they are and also there's uh, and so i uh, and so i wondered to myself you know is that something that's happened it feels likely you know that that something like that happened that people um (laughs) don't necessarily get the hint that now is not the moment to be telling me how much you love my stuff um and the other one that i like which i'm sure isn't and from life or anything but i love the the sort of snarky grave digger (laughs) 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 whose wife is a big fan um, but then says, though, I prefer Westerns myself. And again, uh, it, just, it, it is exactly the sort of thing that people say. They don't mean these things unkindly, um, but it is it is the sort of thing that um, that they say. I once gave a copy of my book. Um, I had somebody who did some work in the house, and it was somebody I knew. Um, it was a, a friend of my in-laws, and he was doing some uh, building work in the house. Really, really nice guy. And he, he sort of saw, I, had a, I just had a delivery of my playtexts, so I think it was my second um, play, and um, he was looking at them and sort of <laughs> not quite admiring them, but oh, it's, you know, this is your thing, this is you. And I said, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I said, oh, you can. And I gave him a copy. I said, you know, that's that's um, that's from me to you. And he looked at it and he went, ah, oh, my wife will love this. <laughs> and it was it was a really it was a quite a lovely moment because it was like him basically saying, I'm not going to read this. I appreciate you giving it to me, but I'm not going to read this. But I know somebody will. 
So those sort of little things, and I'm sure I'll pop that in something. something. <laughs> but yeah, I think there are these. I think there are these um, biographical clues all the way through. And what's interesting to me is I did watch. Um, I did watch the episode Tales of the Dark Side episode, mm-hmm. and the 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 man that they cast to play uh, Stephen King, whose name I've forgotten. Um, apologies, uh, apologies. I'll try to get that before the end of the episode. Um, kind of has a Stephen King vibe, right? He mm-hmm. looks like Stephen King. Um, he looks like 1980s Stephen King. Stephen King. It seems to me that's a very distinctive look as well, isn't it? Yeah, that yeah. sort of <laughs> plaid shirt and the square glasses and stuff. Um, and uh, yeah, so again, I, th- I think I think we've been led in this direction, aren't we? That that there are biographical aspects. But I love your take on this, which is that it is a, a story about how much is at stake when when we have people we love, and that's what I mean about it being bittersweet. Because it doesn't have a happy ending as such, but it, it's 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 a testament it's a testimony to love, isn't it? Really, mm-hmm. and and missing someone. Um, it's also a fascinating thing for a writer to write about is the world when he's not in it anymore, isn't it? Because yeah. he kind of does that with Lisey's story, which is not one of my favourite books, but I think mm. it's a it's a fascinating look at again the character who stands in for him dies and leaves this very troubled legacy behind that is yeah. his wife is left to deal with. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of the same in this as well, although it's a lot more truncated, obviously, for mm-hmm. a television show. They have to kind of cut everything down and mm-hmm. basically say, uh, so his daughter got married and then she gets remarried. And uh, yeah, and she still kind of thinks about him and still essentially stuck in this time loop, isn't she? Yeah. And that's, that, that's grief, isn't it? Because that, that is what she is stuck in. It's grief, but it, it it is grief. Yeah, you're absolutely right. And also, I think that this the 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 episode itself has a has a far sharper third part, third act, for all intents and purposes. Although it's not written as the third act, um, in the sense that we don't, I think, find out in the actual episode that um, Katie has remarried, which we do in the script. Mm. So th- there's almost a there's almost a desire in the writer here to to not make this ending too brutal on this character that he loves that we ought to love that is a nice person that is a decent person is a good person you know that it's not quite as brutal uh, in the script because she you know she's married someone else now and it, it, it's not someone who's replaced her first husband and we get this sense actually in, in a little bit of their banter that it's different their relationship is different she tries some of the same banter it doesn't quite work with her new husband <laughs> but he seems like a nice enough person right um well he, he's an architect isn't he which he's is very ar- much more straightforward and it talks about how the the blueprints have replaced the books and it's just, yes he's a man with a plan you see he's a s- steady reliable sort steady reliable and actually i as much as that might be a little tongue-in-cheek joke and maybe there's a sense of u- usurpation, as in, oh, my book frame book covers have been taken down, but you know, and, and replaced with architectural designs. But the but what he's done as a writer is he's married the writer's widow to somebody who's really stable and presumably financially secure. So it mm. it, it it's quite there's not. I think as writers, we can be quite nasty to our characters sometimes. So we can certainly, as horror writers, we can certainly put them in really, really difficult situations. Um, 
I think Andy Mitten, who um, wrote and directed um, several films, but one of which was The Witch in the Window. Mm-hmm. Um, incredible. Have you seen that? Have you seen that? Mm-hmm. It's incredible, Great. isn't it? He he talked, when I spoke to him on my, my, my podcast, he talked about this idea of writing warm people going through cold things. Mm-hmm. And I love that expression. I've used it, you know, I've credited him for it, but I've used it a lot since we talked since we spoke but i think writers have a you know horror writers in particular have a habit of of doing that putting warm people through cold things but there's something that i i can't quite get away from in in this final um act where everything's kind of fine like obviously he's gone and that's awful and that you know will one will never get over the the loss of a loved one of course and that's you know a big part of what the story is about but i i Aside from a few details about her screaming on the phone later mm. on in the in the in the um, text, I don't know. It feels melancholy to me, and I think there's a way to make this uh, to shoot this script that is more melancholy and pensive and philosophical than awful and you know, um, screechy kind of you know um, horror denouement. Um, so I, yeah, I find that really interesting. I think there's an awful lot of warmth in it, even at the end. I think you're absolutely right for what you said at the beginning. That it's a deeply uh, bittersweet story, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. And it, it, something just occurred to me: the idea of her at the end trying to communicate yes. and trying to help somebody, and they're not they're not able to understand because yeah. she's trying to help herself. Really, yeah. It's it's is that it, it's that's how somebody would talk to a, an addict as well, wouldn't it? It would be that idea of they couldn't understand they can't listen because they're stuck in that loop themselves yeah. and there are so many motifs in this story ah. of people being stuck in things yeah like you've got the film being recorded right you've got that kind of so again it's an idea of recording and you've got the idea of um again those repeated phrases that they use like um i might still be awake which is something that she says to her first husband and the yeah. first husband said to her so again it's a of course, get Stephen King, and I—I I believe he's a genius. You have that these lovely, really clever little notes in it as well. Yeah. But going back to something else, he said, "Yeah, yeah." I'm not entirely sure if Tales from the Dark Side was the best vehicle for this story because I think maybe it would be hard to flesh it out into a feature film. Yeah. But yeah, it might need like a gentler touch, perhaps. I believe you know that there has been another adaptation of it, but I. Mm-hmm. I couldn't find it anywhere. I literally just Googled "sorry, right number" and, and clicked on videos on Google, and it took me to the website where I found it, um, which was just Daily Motion, by the way. Nothing. <laughs> it wasn't anything. <laughs> That's yet. fine. Yeah. I'm not accusing you of anything. <laughs> um, uh, I thought it might be on YouTube, but I couldn't find it on there. Anyway, um, uh, I, I I agree with you, um, and I think that it when you watch the episode and you can watch it you know it, it's a it's a product of its era and it is it's got this music in it which is a little bit i wouldn't say intrusive but it's it, we wouldn't have that now but i agree i think there's i think there's a subtler version of that film to be made i think one thing that I, that struck me which is not really in the teleplay as such which is that in the in the film version um it really ties things up quite neatly with us. We get quite a, a lot of flashback towards the end of that piece, which kind of really concrete, it's a really sort of concrete way of saying, you know, oh, look, look what happened. Um, yeah, remember this? It's, yeah. it's happening again, yeah. yeah. It's like the last five minutes of Saw, you know. <laughs> and we don't need it, like, because 
people are smart. Viewers are smart. You know, people are paying attention, and particularly in the eighties when there was nothing else on. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, so so in that in that regard, I I, I totally agree with you. What another reason why I sort of chose this um, to speak about is one of the joys of writing theater or you know radio drama or film or whatever is the what happens after you've written it mm. what happens when you pass it on to the other people involved because i always sort of say um as a writer of theater i'm not that i'm not enormously precious about every aspect of my scripts when i write them because i can't be because i'm primarily a, a theater practitioner and if i want to be absolutely precious about that stuff then i should be writing prose and i do i write prose as well and i think probably i have a different relationship with my prose writing but i love the fact that when you read this you know this te teleplay and then watch the episode it's it's very very faithful but you can see these additions you can see these changes you can see these artistic choices which i think are um are very interesting to comment upon one is the one that i mentioned before which is that that flashback which you know to me mm. um, isn't necessary but then you can also things like see things like budgetary um restrictions so there's a brilliant moment which i laughed out loud at when i saw in the um the teleplay in the in the book we we get a scene set at the church and it's the daughter polly's wedding she's marrying this man and in the uh in the episode Polly says to Katie at the same moment in the story, thank you so much for letting us have the wedding at home. <laughs> it's, it's just brilliant because obviously when you're churning out 20 episodes of a series like that, it needs to be like one or two locations, <laughs> these episodes for budgetary reasons. So it really made me laugh that because I thought it's a, it's a really neat way of writing that in. And nobody would notice unless they are aware of the difference between the 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 scripts but it made me laugh i felt that i thought that's a really neat way of doing it it made me it made me chuckle but i like that i like to see uh the words on the page build the image in my mind and then see what somebody else has done with it because ultimately this has gone to a director it's gone to a casting agent it's gone to uh, a designer you know a, a director of photography all of these people and suddenly you know you, you take something by an incredible writer, an incredible mind like Stephen King, and you hand it over to a team of people who all put their individual stamp on it. And I find that thrilling. I find it thrilling to watch and witness. I find it thrilling to be, you know, to do in my work. Um, so yeah, so I, it's one of the reasons why I want to talk about it. And it's, it's kind of interesting because this one, it does kind of usher in an era of uh, TV adaptations of Stephen King's work, often written by himself because I mean, up to this point, it's been mainly cinematic. It's been Carrie. It's been um, The Shining. It's been when, The Dead Zone. It's been Firestarter. Yeah, but he transitions to TV here, which I think is, is really interesting. So yeah, after this, yeah. you have like uh, the It miniseries. You've got um, the Stand miniseries, uh, yeah. Storm of the Century. So it's interesting. And also, he writes an episode of The X-Files. So it's obviously something he's really interested in. Which episode did he do of The X-Files? It's called Chinga. It, it was, it's kind of an interesting story because... Um, it's typically for Stephen King. It's set in a small main fishing town, right. which is kind of haunted by a, a possessed doll. Uh -huh. um, and Chris Carter, the creator of the X-Files, really didn't like the first draft. So going back to what you're saying about first drafts, and pretty much rewrote the script. 
And oh. so it's kind of an interesting curio, that episode. As a huge X-Files fan and a huge Stephen King fan, it's uh, it's fascinating to watch. Well, this is it. Like, this is television uh, and film, really, are, I guess, more directors' mediums. I mean, I think, I think actually less so with TV nowadays, but they historically really are a director's medium. But um, I just love the... Um, <laughs> I love the chops of someone who rewrites Stephen King. <laughs> it's kind of amazing. Uh, on that topic, though, there is something about this um, this that I that I would dare I say um, go for it. Tweak slightly. Okay. Um, you want to talk about that now? Okay. Well, um, it's <laughs> it's what I mentioned earlier, which is the 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 middle bit mm. where they. So of course, what happens is um, after the phone call. After Katie is trying to figure out who this voice is that she recognizes as one of her own as a family member, she decides that it must be her other sister, Dawn, and um, they can't get through. And this is where we have the conversation with the operator. They can't get through on the phone. So they drive to Dawn's house and they find the house in disarray. And it's just really brilliant diversion. It's a brilliant bit of misdirection by Stephen King, I think, which is you... The drama takes you into something that is kind of irrelevant. It's a bit of a dead end and it's a bit of a red herring. Um, and we go see the sister. And the sister turns out, Don is absolutely fine. She was just asleep. She's got a new baby. The baby's tiring her out. So, and it's again, it's this quite lovely um, domestic picture. Very feels kind of realistic. I even, I can't remember exactly how her relationship with her um, husband is described, thinks her husband. I think that's fine as well, though, right? Like he was. I don't think there's any any darkness in that family setup. No, right? they seem very kind of close to each other. With fairly, right. you know, easygoing. So it's all it's all nice, and it's kind of. But it's a really good bit of misdirection. It's a really good little red herring. But here, here here's what I thought today, and it's only today that I thought about it. I wonder if Bill had experienced. Well, actually, it began with a note that I wrote to myself to tell, to talk about in this episode, which is. Is the stress of that scene, does the stress of that um, encounter, that driving to the house, looking around the house, oh no, someone's broken in, oh look, the house has been burgled, does the stress of that contribute to his heart attack? I was now, thinking that myself, that's a very good point, absolutely. And it's not made clear, and I feel like King is such a, a good and skilled writer that if he wanted us to know that, we would know it, absolutely. There wouldn't be any need for this kind of... Um, uh, sort of conversation and I think part of that may be and he says it in in the end notes of the collection that it was written really quickly and it was on TV really really quickly like it, he, he sent it off I think to Steven Spielberg initially mm-hmm. to, for another TV show right it was uh, amazing stories I think amazing stories the first round. Yeah. and he didn't want it because it was it was too bleak at the end I think um so it ended up on TV um, really, really quickly after after he'd written it. So maybe that's part of it. Maybe if it had had another three or four um, drafts, maybe we would have we would have done that. And the reason why I why that appeals to me, the reason why I'm sort of I'm reading that into the story when I when I read the, the screenplay is that would have that would mean that the thing that causes his heart attack is also the thing that she tries to do to avoid it. And that's a really nice little loop because the only reason they go to Dawn's house, the only reason they go to Dawn's house is because she receives that phone call and thinks it's Dawn. So there's something quite nice about her having caused 
his heart attack in some way. I mean, I, this is this is again where my horrible horror writer brain kicks in, and I'm like, ah, ha, ha, maybe it's her fault. Um, no, I, I love that. A bit of evidence to support your theory is the fact that um, up to that point, he seems like the more calmative influence on his wife because she is kind of freaking out essentially. And he's saying, it's going to be fine. Don't worry, yeah. it's going to be fine. So you kind of think she's working herself up into a state of um, panic basically. And he's yeah. very calm. He's very yeah. calm. And then, so it's a, it's a real bolt out of the blue yeah. when his heart does kind of give out, you know, you kind of think and he's maybe, in his head. <laughs> and maybe that's part of it. Maybe that's the other thing is that maybe when you're writing drama, you, you, there'll be a crossroads where you'll think to yourself, is it more important that the audience see the heart attack coming or um, or that they, you know, that they know he's ill essentially? So what I guess what I'm saying is that if you, if you, if all you'd need for him to do is to rub his neck, <laughs> right? Yeah. That cliche. It's like when someone coughs in a film, you're like, oh, dead. That's it. <laughs> like, nobody's allowed to cough in a film. If they cough and it's a proper cough, that's it. They're mm. gonna die. Um, if someone my says, favorite one is um, if, if if you see a woman uh, and she's being ill in the morning, it's like oh she's pregnant. Obviously, absolutely, it, it can't be anything else. Yeah. immediately pregnant. And it's <laughs> th these are cliches, but they serve a purpose because it's it's all sort of you know semiotics. It's all our understanding of what these things mean. So it's quite mm. neat. It's quite a neat uh, thing to do. You know, um, um, looking outside and it's raining you know, when someone's had a breakup or something like that is used so, so often. The weather in movies and stuff is used so, so often um, to sort of suggest to us how someone's feeling. Um, but yeah, so I, it I, this it would only require a tiny um, gesture on his part for the, for the eagle-eyed maybe. Um, mm -hmm. uh, and then, and then that would suggest to us that, um, yeah, that that she essentially had had accidentally caused this, and I think dramatically that really feels satisfying to me. Um, I looked, I sort of scoured through the script, and I looked at the episode again, and there's there's a there's a line where he says, "I was scared too." Mm. So I don't think it's beyond the realms of possibility that actually it is just very very subtle, but it is there a little bit. Um, but yeah, anyway, that that's um, that's my two pence worth. But I, I think that's fascinating because he is, if he's that scared, he is keeping it a secret. Yes, and he did have the secret at the time, which was his addiction, and that what yeah. that's what was killing him. Yeah, and only by kind of admitting that was he able to actually survive it. Well, so you can't. And again, that's another recurring theme of well, horror fiction, but fiction generally is you, you can't live with a secret. It's, it's just, it's, it'll come out in the end, you know? Absolutely. So going back to what you are saying earlier about uh, cost-cutting, I found that fascinating. Like, the wedding takes place, basically, in the house. Um, my favourite example of this was uh, in the teleplay, um, the author's son wants to watch the uh, film adaptation of Ghost Kiss. Mm. Ter a terrible name for a book, by the way. <laughs> Yeah, I think the, the only one worse is uh, I think one of his other books is called Spider Doom. Yes, which again is just dreadful. But when when you actually see it in the TV show, I think it's Dawn of the Dead, isn't it? Oh, I see. It. You see, I I wasn't I I wasn't as um, 
eagle-eyed as you on that example. No, I, is it really? Is it Dawn of the Dead? That's amazing. Which would have cost them very little to use because George Romero I, was uh, executive producer on Tales of the Dark Side. Us. So I, I love that us. little twist, you know? That's a nice little nod. Yeah, they didn't have to make a whole other feature film. Of course, <laughs> that makes total sense. Yeah, and, and the other thing, of course, is that um, two of the kids have been merged. Mm into one and it's stuff like it's it's stuff like that like it, you know you turn up to your production meeting with your script and they read it and it's like eight characters and it's like nah we're gonna have to half this you know <laughs> um one of what a play that i wrote in a, a research and development period a few years ago i think initially had five sisters they were the main protagonists and it ended up being three because um quite these practical things i think it's fascinating um uh when you start to learn this stuff but it, we it's just it wouldn't have been practical to tour a show with 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 five actors in it on the budget we were we were working on so well plus like as that. a a theatrical president to three sisters uh, well about well, this i mean that of course we did that <laughs> deliberately uh, <laughs> literally just uh, had that pointed out to me by you now but there we go uh, <laughs> But yeah, so I I think I think that's yeah. So that made me um, sort of smile a bit as well when when uh, we saw that. And but the other question is the other point is um, we don't need those three kids. No, you know two is fine. It does it does the it does the job with those two. Um, two of the kids in the in the script that we read in the book, we could argue are sort of fulfilling the same role. They're sort of doing the same thing anyway, which is to be you know the adversary really to the to the little kid, to Jeff. So. It, it, it's I like I like this I like seeing this input from other people I like seeing this progression it's very very interesting to me but it does point us back to autobiography because he has Bill has two sons and a daughter King has two sons and a daughter so again it's an idea of this is my home life essentially isn't it yeah I think so. yeah I think so and that's yeah that's I'm I'm reading a lot at the moment about short story theory because I'm embarking on a, a project at the moment where I'm, where I'm writing lots of short fiction um uh for the page rather than for the stage and um this idea of writing what you know okay is 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 good advice to to an extent um we should write truthfully and that is something that king himself says in on writing he, he mm. says it doesn't matter what you write as long as it as long as you're being truthful um and one of the things that I read about recently, or was reading about in in a couple of essays, is how do you sort of know when to go? Okay, this did happen to me. This happened. This happened. This happened. How do you know when to sort of sever that and move into fiction and let the fiction mm. rush in and 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 sort of um, fill that gap? Um, how do you know how much of it is just stuff that happened and is true? And is, is and how much of it is entertaining and necessary for uh, the plot? And again, King is is a is a master writer, so he 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 knows this stuff. And even in the eighties, knew this stuff inside out. But it, but it sometimes takes an outside eye to sort of go. Actually, I know you've got three kids in that, but do do they need to be there? Do you need the three kids? And that's something that a director will do, or sometimes a producer or whoever, or even just a proofreader, you know, <laughs> will sort of say, oh, I think these two characters are doing the same thing. So yeah, I find I find that very, very interesting. Um, to, uh, and I, I love the fact that we see lots of writers in King's work, and they've all got demons, I mean, sometimes literally. Um, <laughs> and I think that's, I think that must be, I think, I, 
I would find that harder if every if more or less every thing that I wrote was about somebody who writes theatre. I would find it so hard to make those characters distinct and refreshing. Mm. And I think they are though in, in King. I think in the for the most part we get we get lots and lots of writers, but they're quite distinct. And yeah. even lo- lots and lots of writers with demons, but they're quite distinct. So I think that's um I think that's kind of amazing. You never op- or I don't ever open a Stephen King book and go, oh, it's about another writer. <laughs> you know, I might I might sort of have a slight joke to myself where I think, ah, oh, another writer. But it, I, I don't know. I think it's quite, I think it's quite amazing that he, he, he begins in his own experience what he knows. Yeah, absolutely. And then, and then necessarily sort of moves out into um, the fantastical. No, I, I, I think what you're saying about that um, idea of, yeah, because he writes writers. So you've got like uh, Bill Denver or yeah. Ben Mears or I forgot the name of the guy, Bag of Bones, all at separate points in their career. And so yeah. it's interesting to see like a guy at the beginning of his career or a guy like Bill Denver where he's like a kid and he's starting to write and then he's successful. So we do get that insight into into the writer's life, which, yeah. which is great. Speaking of insights into writer's life, I'd love yeah. to hear about your upcoming tour, Haunted. I have my ticket oh. already. Oh, do you? That's I do. And also... Also, I'm attending your ghost shop uh, story writing class at the uh, Norwich Writers. Are you really? That's Center for Norwich Writing. Yeah. Oh, I'm so pleased about that, Richard. Thank you so, so much. Yes. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Oh, it's going to, you know what? One of the things I love most in everything that I do is leading writing workshops. I love it so, so much. Um, It's it's so wonderful. Um, I, I find that one of my jobs... I think I think the job of any writer is to, is is to demystify writing, um, and actually I'm going to neatly segue slightly back into the King story because he, at the beginning of um, Sorry Right Number he does that lovely thing where he basically slightly belittles uh, these stupid abbreviations for for um, scripts, you know, <laughs> a script um, annotations and directions. And I like that he does that. It's a very sort of um, down to earth way to say don't worry about this stuff it's jargon it's not that important this is what it means let's carry on and i think that if you read on writing which by the way i'm sure i'm very much preaching to the converted with with your listeners it is a brilliant book on writing is it would i went through a period a few years ago where i was trying to write something that i didn't feel entitled to write it's a long long story which i won't get into but i felt very i found it very difficult to write this particular thing and um this was therapy. Stephen King's on writing was therapy. I would read a little bit of it and it would it would it was like a balm going on. You know, he was talking about the struggles that he has and they were identical to the struggles struggles I was having. And it's like, this is Stephen King. And if Stephen King's talking about writing's hard and um not only is it hard, it's not a, it's not it doesn't happen by magic. It's not beamed into your head. It's work. You chisel away at it. This is what I do. Sometimes I feel, I think he uses his expression. Sometimes you feel like you're just um, shuffling shit from a seated position. And to mm. read Stephen King saying that is, is absolutely um, extraordinary. So I, one of the things I love to do is, is write workshops. I'm so pleased you're coming um, because I feel like it makes me uh, sad to feel that there are people who might like to give writing a go or who love reading or who love this that, and the other and feel that it is over there for other people and it is ring fenced somehow for certain people and that that makes me feel um, 
sad, frustrated, and I think it's something we need to uh, dis. You know, I think people need to be disillusioned of that. Um, so that's one of the things I feel like I uh, absolutely I should do. I work a lot with a, a charity called First Story, and they put writers in um, schools around the country, um, slightly dis- uh, disadvantaged schools. Uh, um, uh, I'm working with disadvantaged pupils, and um, yeah, and it's and it's one of the things I, I love to do, and I feel very proud of doing it. Um, talking about haunted, that's that was yes. your question about half an hour. Ago. <laughs> so haunted is an example of a of a show that I have adapted. So it's not an original, uh, not original stories. It's two classic ghost stories: the monkey's paw and the upper burr. Um, uh, so the first one's by W.W. Jacobs, and the second one is by F. Marion. Crawford two absolute bangers they're so scary and creepy and weird and brilliant and you know if you know the monkey's paw it's just a brilliant story um and haunted um is a show that I'm doing sort of between original shows of mine so I have a new original show coming next year called unhomely um and it is a one person show it's just me on stage it's got a soundscape it's got full set um exciting lighting it's really really atmospheric um, it's thrilling to perform. It's me and you in the whole world, Richard. So when you come and see it, the idea is that it's me and you in the whole world, right? I'm telling you this story. Uh, I'm confiding this story in you. Um, and yeah, we're touring um, up and down the country. Um, we are going... So just very quickly rattle off. Uh, I won't Please. do the whole uh, the whole yep. uh, info, but we're coming to Manchester, Hemel Hempstead, Otley, Newbury, Goole, Norwich, Birmingham, yeah. and Bedford. Um, yeah, so I'm... I'm and we're going to put all of these dates and all this information in the show yeah. notes. So please, I urge everybody to go out and buy a ticket for this. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It's a really fun show. If people like ghostly stuff, it's such fun. Like, it's it's it, it's spooky and it's atmospheric. And, it, like, there are some good jumps in it that I know firsthand every time I do the show that get people which is great so so much fun seeing people jump um but it's fun it's it's you know it's it, most people sit there with a big grin on their face for the whole thing um yeah and i'm i'm i've i've moved into adapting um stories um that are self-funded tours so this show this tour is completely under my own steam we're Mm. often lucky lucky enough to get support from the arts council for our slightly bigger shows which are my original uh stories uh that we perform live but these they're sort of that i always want to bring new stuff to to audiences i want i always want to you know be putting something out there but it's not always possible to do that because it's expensive to make theater and it's um takes a long time to write stuff so in between the slightly um more expensive shows i like to do these um these adaptations so yeah i'm thrilled i'm so pleased you're coming i didn't i didn't realize you were so i'm very very pleased um yeah oh no i have a i have a very full slate of um uh theatrical things to do this autumn i've got your show great uh Uh, 222 is coming to norwich as well it's good I can't wait. And Danny Robbins, I think, is doing the Uncanny Stage Show as well. And if yes. you permit me to uh, to self-publicize, yes. I'm uh, the Madam Market Theatre uh, having a revival of Dracula, the original uh, Balderton Dean play in which I'm playing Butterworth the Attendant. I know. Oh. It's it's not. I know. I know. It's. I it's, don't know that. Who is that character? Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> 
sorry. <laughs> I auditioned for Dracula or Van Helsing, and the director said, "Oh, will you read this role? Nobody, nobody's coming for this role." And uh, it was, it's, it's, a lot, it. it's a lot of fun. It's it's the funny bit. It's a very oh, talky, stagey play. But I come on and uh, I do the funny stuff. So, uh, and is it an, uh, is it a revival of Bram Stoker's? It's script? the first um, authorized adaptation of the novel because there was a lot of, as you probably know, there's a lot of copyright issues with Dracula. Yeah. Even to the point where Nosferatu, I think the makers were sued, and uh, Florence yeah. tried to get every copy destroyed. Exactly. So she authorized uh, Balderston and Dean to adapt the uh, book for oh, a stage no, no, no. play on Broadway. I think twenty one or twenty four, and it's kind of the one the film's based on. So it's very stagey, very theatrical. No, you don't no, no. get like the cool bits, like with the you know, you don't see the the gore and the <laughs> sexy stuff that uh, you do uh-huh. in other adaptations. But yeah. it's 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 fun. The director's making a lot of changes, and it's going to be a very um, amazing autumnal uh, Halloweeny treat. So, well, p- please send me the details. I, I I I'm already sad about the fact that because it's around about the same time that I'm touring everything, the chances of me getting there are very, very slim, which is all, it's so annoying when you, when, when you work in this industry. It all happens all once, doesn't it? Yeah. You can't go see anything. So you mentioned lovely Mike Munzer earlier, mm. who asked me, very kindly asked me to be a part of this panel. Uh, he's doing a, um, a screening of, of Rope in Leeds. Yes. And he asked me to be on the panel with him and Becky. And I can't, do it because i'm too busy with other things and it's really annoying um and i can't see any of his other uh things that he's touring at that time which is annoying so you know but anyway this is this it's it's the price you pay for exactly. like spooky stuff but yeah everything happens in like a three-month span and you like kind of cram it all in before yeah and uh, this december i'm going to canada um uh, i don't know if you have a, any canadian listeners um, we do absolutely well if you have well Right now, I'm speaking to people who live in New Brunswick, um, St. John. Um, I, I, I've been asked to take my adaptation of A Christmas Carol to um, the St. John Theatre Company in New Brunswick in Canada. So it's slightly ghosty, slightly creepy. But yeah, I'm there from the 5th to the 9th of December. So if you have any listeners or if anybody's listening uh, and you're in the St. John area uh, or you can get to St. John, come and see the show. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, that's very cool, man. Um, yeah. And also, while, while we're plugging things, Madam Market Theatre are also doing the Haunting of Shu Jane next week, based on the Charles oh, Dickens oh, stories. And they're having a screening of Nosferatu with a live orchestra as well. So please get tickets for that and support it, local theatres. This is the uh, thing; they are a treasure. They are. I, I mean, yeah, it's it's interesting, isn't it? Sort of the post-COVID thing, and I think habits have changed, and obviously people. People are struggling right now in terms of like money and stuff. Not to, not to bring everything down. True, uh, but uh, but uh, yeah. But I'm I I, I feel very very uh, grateful when people come and see theatre. And I agree with you. They are local theatres are a treasure, and if you can support them, you, you should. Yeah, absolutely. So just to wrap this up, Adam, the, yeah. the standard two questions I ask everybody. Firstly, what are you reading at the moment? I am reading a stack of short story collections i like with this process i'm going through um research is is really really key but it's really fun so Mm -hmm. i'm reading uh gosh i'm reading uh speak gigantula by uh a renaissance okg um i think it's sorry let me just pronounce her name again sorry a renaissance 
Okoji. Uh, Great title. I, yes. Speak Gigantula. It's amazing. Um, I'm reading I'm reading some Stephen King, which is great. <laughs> um, I'm rereading Parallel Hells by Leon Craig. Mm-hmm. I'm reading uh, it's, it's an instruction manual on how to... Hang on, let me... Stephen, let me just get the... Um, that's Richard, sorry, Take sorry, Stephen, then let me just get <laughs> the right. um, title. Um, uh, and that, that's kind of spooky because the guy who's going to be sound editing this is called Stephen, so he's going to think oh, I'm talking oh, to him. Stephen, Stephen, this is a message for you. Cut this bit out, Stephen. <laughs> yeah. Um, I'm reading, uh, I'm also reading An Instruction Manual for Swallowing by Adam Marek, which is mm-hmm. just outstanding. Um, Cursed Bunny by Bora Chung is another outstanding collection. I'm just I'm just hurling myself at full force um, into these collections. And then a final mention, which I wonder whether you're a fan of this one, Richard, actually, which is um, Great American Lake Monsters. Oh, by... Nathan Ballingrod. Yeah, absolutely. Great book. Yeah, highly isn't recommended. It, isn't mm. it just stunning? And he does, you know, comparing living authors, obviously, is is a, an odd thing because obviously I don't want to suggest that he's not original because he really, really is. He's got his own thing going on. But if I can make a connection to King, um, he does this brilliant thing where the monsters are just ha- kind of, ha- they're happenstance. They're just in the background. Mm. It's a world where these monsters exist. There's a werewolf in one of the stories. Um, there's a vampire in one of the stories. And they just happen to be there. But the stories themselves are about people and relationships. And I've, I've rarely seen it done as skillfully as the way Nathan Ballingrid does it in that collection. Um, I, I find his, I find his stories incredible. I think they are so, so good, so beautifully written. Um, and also they've got these, you know, classic monsters and beasties creeping about in, in the background. And I, I, yeah, I think it's brilliant. Yeah, so absolutely. Yeah, I, I second that. I definitely seek out that book. And finally, um, what is a book that you think more people should have read? Something that's uh, underrated or flown under the radar a little culturally? Well, it's a book that I I recommend to people a lot. Um, and it is A Visit from the Goon Squad by Jennifer Egan. Do you know this mm-hmm. book? I I know the title. I never read it. It's it. This is this is often happened. So either people don't haven't heard of it uh, or. Um, uh, uh, have heard of it and haven't yet got around to diving in. I think it's brilliant. It's very, it feels a bit like a collection of short stories, but they're all slightly interconnected. And then it goes kind of postmoderny towards the end, and you've got these this whole chapter done as a PowerPoint presentation. Um, I've revisited it recently because um, Jennifer Egan's just released a sort of sequel to it called The Candy House, and so I went back to it to because it's the same characters in this in this sequel. Um, and I listened to it on audio this time, and it's just a treat. It's it's so compelling. Her writing um, seemingly is about nothing and everything all at the same time. Um, and the arcs of these stories, you only really understand the gravitas of, of the story when you sort of start hurling towards the end of it. And what she does beautifully is in the next chapter, it solidifies a few things from the previous story and then the previous few chapters so i yeah i think it's i think it's utterly brilliant um i love it yeah so i i recommend that i mean this is a hard question (laughs) like i am such a reading nerd i love reading so so much i love i've got so many books in my house it's a problem (laughs) um and um yeah so that's a hard question but that they i guess are my 
<laughs> that is my recommendation for no, fine, all fine choices thank you so much <laughs> and thank you adam for joining us today uh we're going to put all your tour dates thank and the you. link to your website and the link to the workshop where i think there are still places available yeah i I'll think so check on that but and again thank you to um uh, steph mckenna at the national center for writing for sorting me out on that and i appreciate that and um We'll see you next month. And uh, until then, thank you very much. Stay tuned and write to us at the Constant Reader Podcast at gmail.com with any recommendations and requests. And don't forget to leave a five star review and rate, like, and subscribe to this podcast on wherever you find this podcast. Thank you very much. The Thank you very much for joining us on another edition of the Constant Reader Podcast with me, your host, Richard Shepard. I'd like to give a special thanks to Dr. Linda Shepard for research and Stephen Leslie Parks for technical production. You can find us on Instagram at the Constant Reader Podcast. We'll see you again next month for another deep dive into the work of Stephen King. Thank you very much. Thank you.